This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the differences in nutraceuticals for humans and pets with supplement formulator, Dr. Gordon Chang. We'll learn about the gift of perspective from health survivor and author, Lindsay Roy. We'll discover the connection between social media and anxiety with Dr. Aaron Megan. And lastly, we'll find out about post-COVID treatment of blood cancer with the executive director of the CLL charity, Raymond Vless. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. In a groundbreaking endeavor, researchers at the University of Rochester have successfully transferred a longevity gene from naked mole rats to mice, resulting in improved health and an extension of the mouse's lifespan. Naked mole rats, known for their long lifespans and exceptional resistance to age-related diseases, have long captured the attention of the scientific community. By introducing a specific gene responsible for enhanced cellular repair and protection into mice, the Rochester researchers have opened exciting possibilities for unlocking the secrets of aging and extending human lifespan. What was once the final frontier of the human genome, the Y chromosome, has just been mapped out in its entirety. Led by the National Human Genome Research Institute, the NHGRI, a team of researchers at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, and many other organizations used advanced sequencing technologies to read out the full DNA sequence of the Y chromosome, a region of the genome that typically drives male reproductive development. The results of a study published in Nature demonstrate that this advance improves DNA sequencing accuracy for the chromosome which could help identify certain genetic disorders and potentially uncover the genetic roots of others. Researchers from the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus and Washington University in St. Louis have identified a way to assess brain activities in sleep that occurs in the earliest stages of Alzheimer's disease, typically many years prior to the developing symptoms of dementia. The digital biomarker uses electroencephalography, EEG, that can be recorded from simple headband devices to detect brainwave patterns related to memory reactivation in sleep, which are part of a system that processes memories in deep sleep. Study results published in Alzheimer's and Dementia, the Journal of the Alzheimer Association, identify a relationship between EEG readings and levels of specific molecular changes indicative of presymptomatic Alzheimer's disease. Additional findings further demonstrate that early stages of mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease can be detected in these EEG signals. I'll be joined by Dr. Gordon Chang in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. 
Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings. He's a regular on this show, and guess what? He's the cover boy in the latest issue of Tonic Magazine. Here he is. Welcome, Gordon. How you doing, man? Great, Jamie. Great to be back. So, you know, I know that your company makes nutraceuticals for animals as well as humans. And over the course of our many interviews, you know, sometimes we'll talk about pets and, you know, I'll ask whether or not, you know, the nutraceuticals are usable by interspecies and we sort of touch upon it. But today we're actually going to cover that in a lot more depth, right? For sure. You know, it's always interesting to me. We do a lot for ourselves. I mean, we take vitamins, minerals, herbs, etc. for ourselves. There is no a market for some of these things in the pet world. Dogs and cats, and we've been a leader in both the dog and cat world as also in the equine world. And a lot of people always ask, Gordon, why would these work on animals, you know, especially things like the herbs? Right, yeah. And I say to them, but all of these animals that we're using, the dogs, the cats, the horses, we're all mammals. And the basic physiology of all mammals is the same. Right. Yes, there is a few differences. Things like tolerances to different chemicals, tolerances to different herbs and so on is different. As an example, chocolate. Right. right? Yeah. Chocolate is full of xanthines, right? And xanthines are not tolerated by dogs very well. However, I always say the difference between poison and medicine is dosage. <laughs> and we know, even though we say xanthines are poisonous from chocolate, are poisonous dogs, I bet you dollars to donuts, people have given their dogs chocolate, like a small piece of chocolate, with no ill effect to the dog. Now, I'm not advocating that you go feed your dog chocolate, okay? But what we do know is that the little block of chocolate that you give your dog, not going to be a problem at all. If he sits down and eats two pounds of solid chocolate, he's going to have a problem. Yeah. Right? But so, but most of us not even getting, your dog, even if he chews up your whole bar of chocolate, he's not going to be necessarily going to pump him, need to go to the vet to get his stomach pumped or anything like that. Again, depending on the size of your dog, of course. Well, we, right? we actually had one of those situations where... You know, I think it was my wife was walking the dog and turned her head for a moment and she scarfed down an entire bar of what appeared to be dark chocolate. And because she's a smaller dog, we actually had to treat it as an emergency situation. But what I came to learn is, you know, as you say, it's the amount that the dog eats and it's the size of the dog because, you know, and there's also t different types of chocolate, you know, like a dark chocolate is going to affect a dog differently than a milk chocolate where where the cocoa levels are much lower, uh, for uh, example. Definitely. Right. So that there's, so there's always a dosage aspect that we need to talk about. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting that everybody worries about the vitamins, the minerals and the herbs. Right. About efficacy with animals. But then, you know, much of the modern medicine that we use on our dogs, etc., right, work 
just because they are for mammals. Some of them have not even been t- not been tested or proved of for, for use in animals. Right? Yeah. It's just that we know that they work in humans, and we've tried them on on, on dogs and cats, and all of a sudden we become we start to use it. Right. So, so I, I know a lot of people are very worried about dosage, especially. And, but one thing I would say about nutraceuticals, the safety margins are huge in nutraceuticals, right? You know, like I know people who have taken, say, Tylenol, okay? Mm-hmm. And for people, the normal maximum dosage per day is, um, I think it's 3,000 milligrams per day, right? Yep. However, I do know that people who take much more than 3,000 milligrams per day, and they don't have a problem with it. Now, again, I'm not advocating people go take more than 3,000 milligrams a day. But what I'm trying to say is that there is a safety margin with any of these recommended dosages, right? Yep. So if people can take, say, 6,000 milligrams for one day and have no problems, right, the safety margins on nutraceuticals are huge, are much bigger than that. Right. So, I mean, I wouldn't feel worried if, you, if your animal gets into something and just took, say, five times the recommended dose or something like that. Usually what you do is to keep an eye on them to see if, if they start to get dopey, etc. Right. Mm-hmm. And they normally will sleep it off if it is or they vomit it out. But usually you do not have to run to the hospital or the vet to get their stomach pumped. But I do know people. Pet owners being what they are, the first thing they'll do is run to, run to the vet and get their stomach pumped because they go with better safe than sorry. Well, because it's because like be, when your kids are small, yeah, right, you run at the first sign of a fever, you run them to the hospital, right? Because you know they can't articulate, right? Like yeah. they they can't tell you how they're feeling or what's wrong, mm-hmm. so you err on the side of caution. I mean, yeah. I I understand. Uh, we don't know exactly. And literally, we don't know, right? So, you know, a lot of people ask, you know, do some of these things work? For example, glucosamine mm-hmm. for joints, right? Yep. I do know uh, for humans, when when this part glucosamine first came out, people were use, using it on animals before it even came to human use, right? But then all of a sudden people are asking, hey, can glucosamine be used on animals? And of course it is, because it's a basic structural component of joints. And it's a stru- when I say a structural component, it's one of the building blocks that you use to make joint tissue, right, which is glucosamine. And the joint tissue from a dog and the joint tissue from a human is chemically identical, huh. right? So, of course, you can use the glucosamine for dogs and for, for people. And one of the stories that goes around is that amongst the um, animal world, they say, oh, glucosamine hydrochloride is the only one that's absorbable in dogs and cats, which is very false because there are lots of studies to show that glucosamine sulfate as well as hydrochloride is equally well absorbed in both people and as well as dogs and cats and horses. Why do you think that uh, information that's incorrect has been circulated? Like, what's the source of that misinformation? Well, a lot of that misinformation came out. It's a marketing thing. Right? Ah. Initially, what, what happened was that glucosamine hydrochloride was sold mainly in animal products. So to differentiate it from human products, which was mainly glucosamine sulfate, a lot of the people who were marketing glucosamine hydrochloride did not want people, owners to start using human-grade products for their dogs. So that's why they came out with that story. Got it. Okay. Right. 
so there are many there's marketing issues with some of these things now marketing issues are important because one of the things is that if anybody will ask me outright can my dog use a human product right right i would probably have to say no and let me explain why i have to say no yeah because in canada we're bound by regulations right mm-hmm. so if i have something blessed for use and when i say blessed i'm talking about health canada yep. health canada says this can be used for human use only I can't really recommend it for use in dogs and cats because it has only been approved for human use. However, myself, if I am at the cottage, for example, and I I have no doggy um, glucosamine as an example, I will give them the human stuff, right? Yeah. Because I know it is the same thing. It's just like, you know, you you buy a bottle of um, vitamin D, right? Mm -hmm. The adult dose is 1,000 IU. And children doses five hundred IU. Now, me being a scientist, I know it's the same grade of vitamin D. So what happens is that if I was to get a thousand IU tablet, right, I would I could break it into two if it's possible. I'd give half, and that would give you five hundred IU. However, again, people like to see the word four children half a pill, and if that is not written on the bottle. People wonder if can kids use it. Yeah, I hear you, and I under, I understand what you're saying about the health efficacies. You know, I would also understand if, like, somebody who isn't a scientist might not feel so comfortable about making those decisions. But I think what you're saying is, look, at the end of the day, use common sense, and you know, in a pinch, you know, you can do these things, and it, it wouldn't be harmful because there's such latitude for right. natural products. Isn't that essentially the message? That's the message. But after having said that, too, there are certain things that you can't right. use into species. Okay? Right. Okay. For example, we'll go for um, something called selenium. Mm-hmm. All right. Selenium, that's an acceptable dose for a horse, is way too high for human use. However, a one-time use is probably not going to be a problem. On an ongoing basis, it becomes a problem. Just because there are, for people... Selenium is at 100 micrograms, whereas a horse you can use one milligram or more, right? But a horse is so much bigger than than a person. It's like five times the weight. Right. Roughly, right? And too much selenium is toxic. However, again, let's say I took the equine um, selenium by accident one day. I'm not going to lose loop over it because the safety margins are huge. If I'm taking it on an ongoing basis, I'll have a problem. Okay. So maybe it would be helpful if you kind of went over some of the ingredients where the crossovers are okay as between, you know, humans and horses or humans and pets, just to give people some some basic information to go by. Well, okay. The list is long and numerous. Okay. But it's easier to say, to basically say, if you want to use a product, for those who don't know enough, basically, I would say to them, if it says recommended for dogs, use it for your dog. If it says recommended for your horse, use it for your horse. And that's the best way to avoid any major issues. Of course, yeah. Right? But if you do know a little bit more, right, and for example, people ask me about things like fish oil, and they want to know how much fish oil is too much fish oil. And I say to them, fish oil is a food. So nobody ever asked me, how much salmon can I eat? I basically says, as much as you can down, right? Mm-hmm. And we know, 
you know, you can only eat so much salmon anyway, right? Right. And even if you take eat too much salmon or eat if you eat too much fish oil, it's like anything. The problem with eating too much fish oil, you'll get diarrhea. And the same goes to animals. If you give them too much fish oil, they will have diarrhea, but they will not get poisoned. Right. Some of these things because they're, they're, and a lot of supplements are closer to food than they are to drugs. Okay, so you know, forgive me. Well, I don't have a horse and I don't have a cat, so I, like I'm, I'm thinking about the packaging and the information that's on the package. If I wanted to sort of glean this sort of information about you know using the different nutraceuticals for different species, is there enough information on the packaging, or should they be going to the website with respect to your products? Yeah, to, to usually, get- the information on the packaging is sufficient for dosage, because um, a lot of the information on the packaging is dosed by weight. Right. Right. So you usually have good enough information. Right. But because I said the safety margins are huge, what I was going to point out is that, you know, like, and we, we've played the hard and fast with safety margins too, because when you talk about, I have a headache today, yeah. right? You know, if you had a hangover, a doozy of a headache, you know, you take two extra strength ibuprofen, right? Mm-hmm. Versus on a daily basis, you probably take one extra strength ibuprofen. So again, you know, it depends on how bad it is. Like, there are products, if you have a dog that has huge joint issues and he's limping around, you need to give him a little bit more. And that's quite safe. Because remember, again, the safety margins are huge, right? If your dog is not limping too badly and he just look a little bit uncomfortable, you don't need to give him as much. The best part about not giving him as much is that the product lasts longer and it costs you less at the end of the day. But I usually say treat for efficacy. So if you have a dog that's limping, give him a little bit extra till he gets comfortable. And once he gets comfortable, you can cut back. That makes a lot of sense. Gordon, if, if people wanted to get more information about dosaging and, and, and this, I presume they can go to your website and get some they more information? They can go to our website. And it, sometimes people will call us up directly and ask, and we'd be more than happy to chat with them. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me on board again, JB. That was Dr. Gordon Chang. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Is fasting part of your health and wellness routine? Lifelong Labs can give you the tools you need to start fasting. Fasting can improve your health, your mind, and your body. Join the Lifelong Labs community now and learn more about fasting. For more information, visit lifelonglabs.com. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Lindsay Roy is a senior vice president at Hallmark Cards, where she's worked for more than 20 years. Her unique life experiences, along with her natural gifts for speaking and writing, have culminated in a desire to share her story in the hopes of helping others tackle whatever obstacles life throws at them. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. How are you? Thank you for having me, Jamie. I'm doing well. 
So I, I read a little bit about you, and I thought it'd be interesting to bring you on the show because you've had some some setbacks that you've had to deal with, which impacts you know your sort of perspective. And I similarly, my listeners know, have had a series of surgeries in the past six months, one of which was life-saving and one which improved the quality of my life. And I certainly have been turning my mind to, you know, what is the result of that and, and how to move forward. You've written a book about perspective. How did you come to the ideas within it? Well, like you were saying, Jamie, you know, life comes to us. And from that, we get a, we get a unique perspective. So my book is called The Gift of Perspective. And the subtitle is wisdom I gained from losing a leg and two lungs. And so it's the last part of that that really is my story, which is a decade ago, I had a freak, tragic boating accident. A boat ran over me, which ended up in an amputation of my left leg. Fast forward to this past year, and I ended up having a double lung transplant as a result of a freak autoimmune condition. Never been a smoker, didn't have COVID, but my lungs were destroyed. So through those two kind of, you know, unique roads, less traveled. Uh, that's how I came to have a unique perspective. It's crazy that it's sort of like a life-threatening incident sort of propels us into considering our perspective. It's, it's sad that, you know, it takes something like that for people to kind of turn their minds to it. But I, I'm hopeful that people can benefit from mine and hopefully from yours too. Do you think that perspective is something that we can naturally change? I do think it's something we can change. You know, my at least observations on perspective is there's kind of two meta types. There's passive, and, you know, we all do that. And you usually do that because you hear something about someone else or something on the news. So it goes like this. You're going about your day. You're thinking about what you're going to make for dinner or who's texting you or getting that thing done. And all of a sudden you see, oh, my gosh, there was this terrible tragedy that happened in the news. Or, oh, my gosh, I got a text and my husband told me that so-and-so has this terminal cancer. And you have that moment, whether it's five seconds, 20 minutes, or seven days where you have this, I cannot believe I was worried about what I was going to make for dinner. Like you just have this unique perspective and that's passive. It's powerful. It's usually sad. And it's once again, something that you don't control. But what I've really tried to learn and frankly, through coping mechanisms and sheer, you know, necessity that there's a second type, which is more active, which is where you have to do this day in and day out things like, okay, I know this sucks, but what are five ways this could be worse? Or what is going right today? Or you know what? I'm not going to sit here and obsess over this problem. I'm going to try to look at it from seven different points of view. Or I'm going to go look from somebody who's overcame this before, and that's going to buoy my perspective. And so I've got lots of different kind of tactics. Those are just a few simple ones to throw out. And even though they sound simple, when you're hanging by a thread, they are incredibly powerful. So long story short, yes, I think it's something we can change but I think it requires work. It's kind of like working out, exercising, but this is more for, you know, working out for your perspective. So I tend to be very introspective and, you know, th that can lead to anxiety and it can lead to overthinking things. And also I, I find that I'm goal oriented. Like I used to be a commercial litigator for 20 years before I, I got into health and wellness and, you know, working backwards, which is what I always tell my kids. Like if, if there's something you're dealing with, you got to work backwards to get to the goal but goal orientation and introspectiveness can sometimes work against you if you're trying to gain perspective. In other words, you get obsessed with a, a problem. Are you that type of personality or are you more like the easygoing person who's just sort of cottoned on to these tools? Uh, 
you know, I, I think a little bit of both. Mine's more circumstantial. I'll say in general, it sounds like you and I have a lot in common. I'm goal-oriented. I can get obsessive about things. I can definitely overthink and lather myself up and worrying for sure. I think my natural disposition is one that's a little bit more easygoing, but based on my life experiences, I've kind of turned oftentimes into to the more, um, you know, overthinking type. But I will say that I don't think it necessarily matters which type of person you are on this. I think what does matter is then how much effort you have to put into just stopping that train, redirecting it. And I say this once again humbly because I'm not always good at it either, but I have found if you just let the worry train go without any stops in the tracks, that's not a road anywhere healthy. And so, you know, we'll talk through, I'm sure, our discussion here about some of the other kind of things I've learned and things you've learned, but these perspective tools are something that I think you have to work on. And frankly, we're all going to have challenges come our way. So we might as well all figure out, you know, how to navigate them. For me, when I was in the hospital, it was it was like I stopped focusing on, you know, the end result, which was very hard for me, which was, you know, being back to total health to like what's in front of me today. What can I achieve today? How can I move forward today and just get through this day? What are some of the tools that you use that you think are sustainable to changing your perspective? I love what you just said, so I'm going to build on it. You know, and and some of these things I'll say to your listeners, if you're not in the middle of a struggle right now, you might think, okay, I've heard that, that sounds trite, whatnot. But the difference between knowing it and actively doing it and using it are two very different things. Agreed. So, uh, you know, ask everyone to spend for a minute if some of these things sound obvious, because trust me, in your moment of challenge, you will need them and you will find them to be useful. But what you were just talking about, kind of that moment by moment thing, two things pop into my mind. One is I was just chatting yesterday with a friend of mine from work. His name is Luis. And when I was first having my lung issues, you know, picture me, I'm sitting on my front porch with like the big old school green oxygen tank and a cannula in my nose and just like, I can't believe this is happening to me. And at the same time, this young, vibrant, he grew up in Colombia as a soccer player, uh, you know, just an awesome, healthy young person. 36 years old. I'm talking to him while I'm on the porch. He had just been diagnosed with a rare form of cancer and was told he had 12 months to live. Four young children at home, the whole story. So we're chatting and we're talking to each other about, okay, we just got to take this day by day. Fast forward, great story. He is doing awesome. His cancer had this miraculous outcome and he's doing really great. But he was talking and and helped me through kind of a chapter I included in my book where I'd sell his story. And he talked about Everyone always says, what do you want to be in five years? Or what's your life plan? Or what are your goals for the new year? And he's like, you know what? I think that's all wrong. He's like, I feel like I'm truly living now because I had to learn through facing death so extremely this notion of just living moment by moment. And that week that I talked to him after he was doing better, not the porch time, but another time, he said, you know what? I have my six-month scan coming up on Thursday. Like today's Monday. And I'm going to do Monday. I'm going to go pick up my kids and do my job. And tomorrow I have a soccer championship in the evening. He's like, Thursday will come and and I will get to it. And I thought, wow, that's like a powerful mindset. And he works all the time at doing that. And the second thing that quickly comes to my mind is my husband, who, you know, the people who love you and surround you go through these challenges with you in their own, you know, path. And he oftentimes, I think, uses this three-foot rule, which is like a Navy SEAL kind of thing. But it's essentially like if it's not in your three-foot purview, don't worry about it. Focus on what you have to deal with right now and try to shut out the noise of everything else. And so those are two you know, different tactics from two different kinds of people. But I think that notion that you're saying of you don't have to figure everything out today. And frankly, by thinking about it, you're just borrowing tomorrow's trouble, I think is so powerful and so important to tell our brains that. 
Yeah, so you explore what you call vulnerability and opening up as a skill. And I think for a lot of people, it really would have to be a skill. It doesn't come naturally to them. What do you mean by that, and, and how would you go about doing that? Yeah, you know, I think vulnerability sometimes scares people. I mean, if you think about the technical definition, it can mean things like opening up, being laid bare. I mean, for some people, it's the equivalent of going in public naked, like I am not sharing my yeah. true self. And I get that. And and I think it's important to say this also is a spectrum that's relative to each of us. For some people, you know, it might be just being willing to open up to yourself and, and not denying things. You know, you and I both know people who have a challenge. Let's use a health challenge for this, you know, yeah. particular topic here that comes along. And you're like, you know what? I'm not going to think about it. I can't deal with this. I'm going to sweep it under the rug. I'm not going to go to the doctor. You know, some people are on that end of the spectrum. So vulnerability for them might be embrace that this is a challenge and deal with it. For other people who maybe are more vocal or comfortable being open, it might be taking that next step and sharing in the middle of a journey what's happening every step in the way on, you know, a platform like social media or CaringBridge. For some people, it might be, hey, I'm just going to be open because I've already gotten through this challenge and I am wanting to help others. And that's going to help me heal because that'll create purpose in my pain. And for some people, that might be as simple as asking for help. Maybe you don't broadcast to everybody what you're dealing with, but your three best friends and your neighbors and your siblings you tell so they can be there to help haul your kids around or, you know, bring you a meal or whatever. And so there's a lot wrapped around this idea of vulnerability. And I think it's personal, situational, but I think there's so much power into applying the general concept in specific ways to yourself and to your situation. I agree. And, and you know, you're doing it through your book. I do it through my show and my magazine. I think it's important to humanize some of these things that people go through but perhaps don't talk about. My best friend is a publisher as well, and he has never done a publisher's note in his magazine, refuses to put himself out there, whereas my publisher's note is front and center and, and frequently forms the theme of the magazine or the show, for example. And I actually think it's it's like a public service. Perhaps I'm being like narcissistic, but I actually think it's important that people hear about it from somebody who's experiencing it because it's so two-dimensional until you're in it. And and I feel like as good a job as we're doing today, people unfortunately may have to live it to understand it. I hope that's not the case. I hope we're doing God's work today. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I sure know that it sounds like you're earnestly trying, and I know I'm earnestly trying because there really is, I do think, you know, like you said, doing God's work that... He has a plan for our struggles, and I, like you, try to think, well, if there's anything I can do to at least, even if someone has to go through it, if you can make it 5% better or 50% better, like, why not? You exactly. Know? And it, it leads into just one quick other concept is vulnerability and perspective kind of merging together here is, I like this term that I've, I don't know, I'm, I made it up, but I'm sure someone else has too, called borrowing perspective. So if I go through your same thing, I can at least listen to you and think, okay, I kind of know what's up ahead, or I can see that yeah. something good can come from this. And I think if we put ourselves out there, you know, people can borrow our perspectives, which, you know, why not? If I'm already got some lessons under my belt, I'm happy to share them. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. That was Lindsay Roy. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss social media and anxiety on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. 
Don't wait. Go today. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. After serving as an officer in the Israeli Defense Force and earning a PhD in psychology from Stanford University, Dr. Aran Magan completed a postdoctoral training in population health as a Robert Wood Johnson Health and Society Scholar. He then served as the research director for the University of Pennsylvania's Department of Counseling and Psychological Services before founding Early Alert to help reduce suicide and support wellness of veterans, service members, students, clinicians, and employees everywhere. Welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. So you've seen an increase in mental health struggles and you think it might be from social media use. Is that right? Like, what is the interplay between social media and mental health struggles? Like, why is it impacting our mental health? This is a really big question, and I should say right off the bat that this is pretty hotly debated. A lot of people like to say social media is pure evil, and other people say it's great, and the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. What it does allow is for people who are really struggling to have a sense of connection, and the question is, is that a, a real connection and a helpful connection or not? You can imagine if you're feeling very lonely and isolated and you really need the company, actually being connected with other people who maybe you don't know very well through social media might, might feel really nice and can give you a nice bump, sort of like how people sometimes turn on the TV just to have voices in the house, right, just to feel like they're in company. But there are other times when you can get all the wrong input from social media. You could look at it and see all of these very stylized, sort of Photoshop versions of people's lives and feel much worse about your own life because it seems like everybody's doing great in that version of social media. You might get just really bad advice when you're asking about what to do about your own condition or how to feel better. And some people, even well-intentioned people, might give you really terrible advice. My view is it's too easy to find your own little personal echo chamber. Like you're essentially curating the information that you're getting on social media. And so you can always find your your tribe, right? Like, so for example, if you want to hear that it's okay to be massively overweight, right? Like no body shaming in this little zone, right? You'll find a bunch of people who will tell you, yeah, that's great. In ways that maybe your friends in real life might say to you, hey, I've noticed you put on a lot of weight lately. Like, how are you feeling, right? As opposed to celebrating a particular point of view, for example. I personally think the other problem is we're conflating fact and opinion too much and it's endemic on social media that you can't tell the difference between what is fact and what is opinion but that's my little soapbox i agree with both of those and i think that there's also the flip of that which is sort of the problem right so you might go into an echo chamber where everyone agrees with you or you might be someplace that you think is safe and then have the trolls just start yeah hurling boulders at you at a time that you might be very vulnerable so that's a big problem as well My personal take on the biggest challenge with social media is that it makes people feel as if they're connected to other people when the connection is actually fairly shallow. And there are parts of us, there are parts of our brain that really are only nourished 
in real life, you know, face-to-face, deep relationships. And it's a little bit like, like empty calories, right? Social media can provide empty social calories as opposed to actual nourishing relationships. And I think that's one of the bigger risks. Do you think that social media is acting as sort of like a crutch for people such that like so that they don't need to engage in real you know social interaction in other words it's easier or is it that they believe that they're actually engaging in real social interactions and they're sort of being duped into these what you call shallow relationships or is it both i think it may very well be both and i also want to emphasize again sometimes wonderful things happen on social media people form important connections actual social movements start or people learn about information that wouldn't normally be available to them or their community, like really good things can happen too. And I think for people who have, for example, a hard time socially in the real world, people with social anxiety that are really activated by looking at other people's expressions and seeing anything other than a welcoming smile, which, you know, is usually what happens when you enter a group. Not everybody turns and beams towards you, right? So this can be very hard for some people. And that doesn't happen when you're interacting in text format with new people, right? So that's, it's easier question is, does it lead to the kind of warm, full relationships that we need in our life? Okay. So let, let's sort of skip ahead. And like you have developed something called Early Alert. Can you explain why you did it and what it is? Yes. I had been working with medical schools on student wellness for a few years at the time. And as you may know, there's a lot of suicide happening in medical schools. It's a real tragedy. It's very present. Most physicians know people who died by suicide at some point during their medical training. And I was talking with people who are essentially responsible for student wellness at these programs, and I asked them what their biggest concern is. And they said that it's that they have a student in crisis that they don't know about. And then one one day they'll just wake up and read about the student in the news. And it turned out that there was not really a way for them to check in with students very frequently. There are a lot of students, on average 600 students in a medical school in the U.S., And they can't check in with everybody individually. And students don't always say, I'm not doing well, I need help, just like everybody else doesn't always say that. Um, And sometimes they're not even aware that they're starting to decline. They think it's normal. They think that this is just what this kind of stress is like. And that's how it is. And so I developed a system that checks in with students. At the time, it was only medical students. A system that checks in with students individually once a week through texting, right? So it's very fast. It's very sort of private. And it just asks them how they're doing in in different ways. We check in with them about how they're doing uh, once a week. If the students are not doing so well, we start referring them to support resources in their own university, in their own school, based on resource maps we build with the school beforehand. And if the students are in any kind of significant distress, we have a counselor reaching out to them in real time. So the whole notion behind Early Alert is that we do proactive prevention. We're not waiting for people to say they need help. We ask them how they're doing. And if they say they're not well, we're not waiting for them to pick up the phone and call a counselor. We call them and have a conversation with them and and start them on the road toward doing better. And we did this for a couple of years in the med schools, and it, it grew quite quickly and was very effective and very well accepted. And so we started expanding to other types of programs, initially in academia, like law schools and pharmacy schools and other kind of high-risk, high-stress programs, and then outside of academia as well, starting to work with K-12 
starting to work with first responders, starting to work with veterans now. So it's just kind of, it seems to be a, a pretty generalizable approach, right? Just ask people how they are once a week, individually, privately, and then provide resources if they need support. So you've, you know, originally you were dealing with doctors and then you've expanded to other like postgraduate degrees like law and then to first responders. Do you feel that the barrier is sort of the types of individuals who go into these professions or is it more a cultural thing where like if you are a doctor or you are a lawyer, you are like a, an EMT or a firefighter, that you're the type of personality that uh, internalizes the struggles as opposed to being open about it? Or is it a mix of yeah. all of so let me, let me make sure I understand your question. You're asking me, do I think that what makes these populations high risk is essentially the, the profession or the context or the people that choose to go into that context? N- nature or nurture or both? Yeah, I think definitely both. I think that it takes a certain kind of person to decide to go into something that is known to be high stress and high demand, whether it's into law or dental medicine or to go and become a police officer. These are often people that drive themselves pretty hard and are willing to face a lot of adversity. And then once you're in there, of course, you do face a lot of adversity and experience things that any other person would would call traumatic. And for you, they're just things that happen every day. You're exposed to a lot of stress. The culture is often really hierarchical. And the expectation is for people to be the heroes, right, to be the ones that help, not the ones that receive help. So all these factors also contribute to an elevated risk. Having said all this, I want to say, I want to add two caveats. One is the cultures are changing slowly, but surely, which I think is really encouraging. There's a lot more emphasis on encouraging people to accept help, um, but it's a slow uphill journey. And the other is early alerts not just used in recognized high-risk populations. We're doing it in K-12 schools, for example, um, where it's just normal kids, right? Because we're also seeing an increase in suicide among kids in the past decade or so, a couple of decades, actually. So it's not just for high risk. So now that you've been working with this program for a number of years, what sort of information have you learned from Early Alert? What's the data? I learned a few things that were surprising to me. One is that people are really happy to confide in a robot (laughs) um, because they're all aware that they're talking with a robot that will then escalate if necessary to a human. But even as they're talking to a robot, they're they're confiding and, and confiding emotionally. They're writing conversationally. And this connects a little bit to what we talked about before with social media, right? As people, we're really evolved to seek relationships wherever we can, right? We can have a relationship with our refrigerator. Like, we just treat everything as if it's, it's a real thing that can feel things toward us, and then we start interacting with it for better and for worse. And so I see people interacting a lot with the robot, sometimes quite emotionally. So that's one thing that surprised me. Another thing that I, I was really surprised and I'm glad to see was that oftentimes when people disclose distress to early alert and are then willing to accept a call to discuss it, we check back later with the program or the institution. And majority of the time, about 65% of the time, these are people that were not on anyone's radar, right? Like they looked fine. They looked like they're doing well at school. They looked like they're functioning well at their work. But when you ask them individually, privately, how they're doing, they say, I'm really not doing well. And then you can say, would you like some support resources? And they say, yes, please. Right? It's that, that first step, just saying something's wrong, I need help, is very, very hard for people, but is shockingly easily overcome by asking people, how are you, in a private way that they perceive as sincere. So that, that for me, 
is the main takeaway. Also, in my private life, right? Not just texting people through a robot, asking them how they are. Just the importance of asking people, how are you? The importance of checking in. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Elan Magan. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss post-COVID blood cancer care on The Tonic. Join the Big Carrot for their Courtyard Market Sunday, September 17th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Shop local organic vendors and enjoy green roof activities and drop-in garden workshops. There's barbecue, live music, big deals, and a kid's craft zone. Fun for the whole family. And admission is free. Stop by 348 Danforth Avenue. The Big Carrot, your one-stop shop for everything health and wellness. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. September is Blood Cancer Awareness Month. Today, over 150,000 Canadians are affected by a blood cancer with someone diagnosed every 24 minutes. COVID has created a disruption to cancer care across our country with rescheduled treatments and delayed diagnosis. How does this impact the post-COVID cancer care environment for Canadians? We're going to find out because we're going to speak with Raymond Vless, who is a CLL patient advocate and the chair of CLL Canada. Welcome to the show, Raymond. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So as I mentioned off the top, September uh, marks Blood Cancer Awareness Month. Why is awareness so important? There's a whole range of reasons why it's important, but I think people need to understand that, yes, blood cancer is a life-changing event, but it's not a death sentence. Uh, There are a lot of treatments that are available, depending on the type of blood cancer you have, of course. There are over 200 kinds. So there's always uh, there's hope, and uh, you know many blood cancer patients have still have a long life ahead of them. And with all these treatments, you know we're getting into really survivorship. In other words, you manage your blood cancer over time, and you manage the survival, and you manage the impacts that, that come with that. So that's all important, I think, to know that there are people around who are, for instance, immune compromised, even though they look healthy, and so they're more susceptible to infections. And finally, I would say that uh, it's important to highlight the important work of patient organizations, such as my own, but others, Lymphoma Canada, Leukemia and Lymphoma Canada, in terms of the information and support that they provide to, to patients and their loved ones. Right. I happen to know somebody who has blood cancer, my mother, uh, who mm-hmm. was diagnosed not too long ago. And, you know, there were symptoms which were sort of floating around for many years, but sort of nobody put it together. Uh, yep. And it's and it's ironic that she got diagnosed, I think, either right before COVID or during COVID, uh, mm-hmm. when people just weren't seeing their doctors as much, because right. it really kind of needs a clever doctor to sort of figure out, you know, that it is, in fact, a blood cancer. You know, obviously, you, you know, you should be referred to a specialist. But, you know, her experience was it wasn't obvious that something like blood cancer was occurring. And I, and I think that's the case with a lot of Canadians. So there's, there's 155,000 Canadians that are affected by blood cancer, mm-hmm. and that includes chronic lymphatic leukemia, also known yeah. as CLL. 
Can you define what CLL is and what the prevalence and impact and signs and symptoms are so people can get sort of a, an idea of what that means? Yeah, CLL uh, is apparently one of the most common types of uh, blood cancer. And it's a cancer of a kind of white cell, you know, the white blood cells that are part of your immune system, and called the lymphocyte. And it's a cancer of those cells. And there's about uh, probably um, 1,700 people or maybe a bit more diagnosed annually. And it's often diagnosed through a blood test, though sometimes uh, where the lymphocyte levels are higher. Uh, But it can be through the side effects, uh, whether it's a swollen lymph nodes or frequent infections, uh, etc. So the other thing that characterizes uh, CLL is that it's a chronic disease. In other words, some cancers, you really need to treat them fast. CLL evolves more slowly. And for a whole bunch of reasons, there's a, you, you go through a watch and wait period before you actually get treated. It can be short. It can be long. It really depends on the, on the patient. So um, actually, CLL is fairly relatively easy to spot. The signs are relatively easy, easy to spot. But I understand other blood cancers, so perhaps the more obscure ones, it's not obvious that that is happening and that you get referred to a, to a specialist. Right. And, and once you've been diagnosed, you're going to be taking medicines and sort of caring for this blood cancer for the rest of your life, right? And then, Well, not, not necessarily, because CLL is a chronic disease. Yep. It evolves slowly over time. Uh, there's about 20 or 30% of patients who never have to be treated, so that you go through this watch and wait period. That's true for some other blood cancers as well. So you're not treated, but you're followed by the doctor. You have regular blood tests. And you, your symptoms are under surveillance. And when your symptoms start to cause problems, that's when you get treated. I myself was diagnosed in 2010 because of an abnormal result on a blood test. And I was treated in 2018 Hmm. on a six-month immunotherapy treatment. And so I've been five years in remission. That is this month, touch wood. And if the CLL comes back, which it may do, there are other treatments that I can take, that I will take. And so that's for CLL patients, that's one of the things that is very encouraging. So the number of treatments in the pipeline and, you you know, patients often do go from one treatment and they get a few years, five years, maybe more remission. And then they comes back and they go do another treatment. It's a disease that you manage. You don't cure, you manage it. What are some of the challenges that CLL patients face mentally, emotionally, physically? Well, in terms of the mental challenge, it's often getting the diagnosis. Right. And dealing with the diagnosis and starting to, and it seems like a death sentence, but once you understand more about the disease and how it works, et cetera, it doesn't seem quite so bad. And if you, especially if you go on forums, some good internet forums where you hear other patients' experience, you can see that, well, you know, you can live with this. But you have to get used to the idea that there's no cure, but you'll be treated. And uh, I myself, when I go back to blood tests, I'm always, uh, you know, three times a year, see my doctor and I'm a little bit worried about, well, what's the blood test going to show this time around? Right, I imagine. The, the physical symptoms, the biggie is fatigue. That is the most uh, difficult one to deal with. There are so swollen lymph nodes and other, other what we call B symptoms, but I won't get into the details here, I don't think. And there's also a heightened infection risk. Because since um, it's a cancer of the immune system, well, your immune system become a part of your immune system. I'm sorry, not the whole thing, but a part of it, the B cells, become dysfunctional. So you, you start getting more, you, some people start getting more infections more often, and they have to be more careful. I myself now get infections I never used to get before to learn to live with that. How did COVID impact all of this, either through diagnosis or treatment? What happened? Well, clearly, you know, people weren't going to see the doctor. 
So that delayed the diagnosis. That's less of a critical issue, I would say, for, for CLL patients, unless there's some of the occasional CLL patient does have to be treated quickly. That happens. There's, there's a lot of variability, you know, in, in diseases, in CLL in particular. So that's less of an issue than in other cancers where rapid treatment is required. On the other hand, some of the treatments require you to go into the hospital to get infusions. So those uh, treatments, while interesting, were not favored because, you know, you try to avoid having people go to the hospital because there's a lot of COVID patients in hospitals and it's a place you could get them. The other impact, I would say, is that phone appointments, which is good. The doctor can discuss your blood test results on the phone, but he can't check your lymph nodes, which is an important part of the, the follow-up, you know, how, how are the lymph nodes swollen or not. And, and also, uh, I guess the other impact was on for being immune compromised. If we got COVID, many of us had more severe consequences. Right. And um, so some immune compromised patients, depending on how the province you're in defines immune compromised, with CLL patients, some CLL patients didn't have access to that priority care because it was defined as cancer under treatment, which wouldn't follow people in remission or people in watch and wait. So that was a problem. And also, just finding out about these treatments and the availability, you have to know where to find the information. It's a challenge for us as well. What's happened post-COVID in terms of CLL care? What should we know? Well, I think we're suffering from the delays that the whole system is suffering from. There's nothing that is stood out that's particular about CLL that isn't the same for other kinds of cancers. You know, and so it's other than the fact maybe it's more difficult to get access to your physician if you have a problem, you have to go to an emergency. And, you know, that's, I would say that, that and, and I think the other thing is that post-COVID, the whole system is under stress. People are working really hard and uh, there's staff shortages and there's all these things that we read about in the papers. And, well, that can give rise to mistakes, more mistakes than, than usual. Uh, you know, and less time with your doctor, less time with the nurse. So those, I think, are impacts as well. And, you know, the issue around mistakes is, I think, one of the reasons that it really pays to be well-informed about your disease and potential treatments and tests that should be done so that you can sort of follow what's being done and, you know, make sure that the list is checked off properly. Okay. Uh, and this is not, I'm not blaming the personnel here. This, the whole system's under stress. Yeah, no, I know. I, I didn't take your answer to be critical of individuals within the system. The system is messed up. There's no question of that. We have time for one last question, and that is, where can Canadians go for more information on CLL? Well, the first place I would suggest is the uh, websites of the three uh, blood cancer organizations. The two major ones, which would be Lymphoma Canada, and the other one would be the site of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. And then there's a whole plethora of uh, smaller disease-specific organizations like us. We're just focused on CLL. And we have a resource and information center on CLL on our site. And these organizations, they have really good information on their website. So search, go see the, the major, the biggies, the majors. And also, if you, if you know what your, you should know what your diagnosis is, search for an organization working on that specific diagnosis, that specific disease that you would have or that your loved ones have, because, you know, often it's caregivers that do the research. What is your website? It's uh, CLLCanada.org. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Lindsay Roy, Dr. Aaron Megan, and Raymond Vless. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. 
You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.